0: The passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning is found in Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 through 9. Would you please uh, find that passage, Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 through, through 9. And when you find your place, would you just, out of the respect and the honor for God's Word, let's stand and we'll read this together. Starting with verse 2, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, I, I praise you for just um, bringing this people to come to hear your living holy word. I pray that, that I am not heard and that you are heard and that the, the attention of your people is to be fixed upon your living word that's active and sharper than a two-edged sword. God, thank you uh, for this day, even the day that it did not snow and make it easier uh, to come together to see you and to honor you and to worship corporately together. So just uh, um, hear us now as uh, we go to you in worshiping of the word. We just pray your presence in this and that you get the glory in your holy name, amen. We here at FBC have been looking at Philippians now for quite a few weeks. And as we now come to the ending of Paul's letter to the Philippians, there's about 14 verses remaining. And from the inception of the Philippian church, they had had their problems. The members were desperately poor, very poor Roman small community, so much so that Paul was moved by their size of their monetary contribution to their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And like Paul, they were being persecuted for the proclamation of the gospel. And worse yet, they were being attacked by false teachers. And on top of it all, on top of it all there was a feud between two prominent women in the church threatening to shatter their unity. Yet despite the circumstances of both writer and recipients, joy permeates the Philippian church, so much so that this book is referred to as the epistle of joy. So, as we carefully study and meditate upon these teachings, and the application of its principles, we will learn the secret of having joy, and peace, and contentment in every circu- or every circumstance of life. Uh, if you look at verse 11 in the same chapter, would you follow along with me as I read this? This is where Paul was. This is how he felt. He said, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity and in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What an attitude. Isn't that the way to live? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He held on to these powerful uh, concepts. Okay, the main theme of the letter is a call to two primary attributes, unity and divine joy, unity and divine joy. You're going to hear this repeated over and over, so it drives and brands itself onto our brains. The first point, unity. Unity in the church equals spiritual stability. Let's read verse 2. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Paul gets right to the point. He names the two women caught up in a factious conflict, threatening the joy and the unity of the Philippian church. For a healthy church to flourish in unity, to be a light in a dark world, it must be vigilant in ministering to one another, and to be a source of confidence and encouragement, unity must be pursued. The church is called to shepherd the flock through the leadership of the elders and the deacons, and profoundly important, the gifting of the people in the congregation, the heads, the eyes, the feet, and the arms, that support and drive and give us a visible um, stance in the Lord. They are to stand firm courageously, to uphold sound biblical doctrines in unity. The Scripture says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion Make my joy complete by being in the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul was in prison 1,300 miles away in Rome, Italy all the way over to Europe. Just amazes me that he had such good contact from such a great distance. Um, and, and, and when he heard of this, this great threat that was undermining the church's unity with these two bickering women, it's, just, it's fascinating that in prison he picked up on that and was very concerned about the health of the church. And, uh, in uh, the second verse of chapter 4, he begins with, you can look at it there with me, I urge Eodia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. He uses a double emphasis here to show his great concern. He didn't say it once. He drove it home twice. He says, I find it amazing that Paul heard of these factious women from such a great distance, from Rome to Europe, and the potential threat of uh, destabilizing the church. Their divisive disunity had the potential of destroying the church's testimony Paul pleaded with them in a double urgency. I urge, I urge. It's interesting to note these two women were prominent church members, verse 3. Paul said, they shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names were in the Book of Life. These women were doctrinally sound, And had fought for the gospel alongside Paul. They had already done battle against false prophets previously in chapter 2 and 3. So Paul's asking two trusted elders gently to go and plead with these women to live in harmony in the Lord. He urged, he implored, he appealed to the women for the testimony of the church to settle their differences for the unity of the body before the enemy gained a foothold to destroy the credibility and the years of labor that Paul had poured into that church. Look at verse 3. There's there's very little known about Paul's true companion mentioned in verse 3. Let's let's read it there. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement and also with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Very little is known about Paul's true companion mentioned in this verse. Uh, Companion means yoke fellow. The Greek word is Susigus. Most commentators believe this to be companion's name. It's not just a companion, my friend. He has actually had a name. It would be, it would be like calling someone faith, hope, joy, grace. So this guy's name was Susigus. Susigus was likely one of the elders along with Clement. Paul had reminded these elders of their duty to confront these two women that were making for an unstable fellowship. Paul's heart was heavy. He was hard-pressed to head off this faction because these women shared with Paul in his struggle in the cause of the gospel. They were probably present when Paul began his ministry in Philippi years before, and they came alongside Paul in their early struggle against false teachers, false prophets that were opposing sound doctrine. As one commentator expressed, quote, the tragic conflict between Eodia and Syntyche reveals that even the most mature, faithful, and committed people <clears throat> can be so selfish as to be embroiled in controversy if they are not diligent to maintain unity it must be a passion that drives us. The other elder that is mentioned is Clement. And again, there's not much mentioned of Clement. There's very, he's not mentioned hardly at all in the Bible. Um, but he also shared with Paul in the, cos- uh, in the uh, cause of the gospel and was considered to be one of the elders. So we have Suzygus, along with Clement And then Paul, in addition, didn't want to miss those that helped in the ministry, so he said, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the Book of Life. Paul expresses passionately his desire for vigilant love, a vigilant love for unity in the fellowship of believers. And as it's only there in unity that spiritual stability flourishes. Spiritual stability requires peace and harmony. We are unstable when we are not united with that spiritual stability. In chapter 2.2, um, Paul pleaded with them to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Notice the theme that goes through the whole four chapters. There are some indicators that there was further discord in the Philippian church as he exhorted it to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Chapter 214 alludes to that. When mentioning spiritual stability, it's important to note that true believers' fellowship support and encourage the lives of one another in the body of Christ. This maintains spiritual stability. The overall strength of the fellowship becomes the strength of the individual. If everybody's getting along and we're drawn together with a sweet strength that comes from that, that unity that even down to the last person in the body, they will be stabilized. The more isolated a believer is from other Christians, the more spiritual uh, unstable they are, and and that makes for just a mess in the church also. The church should be a place where people support and hold each other accountable. They should care for one another, We should be a people that are praying for each other passionately. We are called and saved not into ourselves to be dead end or cul-de-sac Christians. We must go out and produce. We are called into one body of Christ to corporately thrive as we preach the word to be ready in season and out to reprove, to rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction, 2 Timothy. So again, we see that unity in the church equals spiritual maturity. That's what we wanna be here, is spiritually mature. The second point that I'm bringing out here is that the second point is joy. Spiritual joy maintains spiritual stability. Paul speaks of this joy in verse 4. He says, look at it. He says, rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say rejoice. The world uses the word happiness for joy, which is a fleeting feeling of exhilaration. It's here one day and it's gone the next. These pleasurable feelings are evoked by momentary, monetary gains are by circumstances that are pleasing but soon evaporate or dissipate when the pleasures of life can no longer sustain them. In this letter to the Philippians, Paul describes a joy from the Greek word in both its noun and its verb form, and it appears better than 12 times in these four chapters. Here's an example in in chapter 1. He says always offering up prayer with joy. Chapter 2, 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Chapter 3, 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And now where we are, chapter 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I will say rejoice. How is it Paul was able to speak so much of joy in this letter. The scriptures say he was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter. He had been shipwrecked several times. He was beaten, he experienced hunger and thirst. He was harassed by governing powers and religious leaders. Paul was faced with unrelenting opposition. His oppressors assaulted him physically and verbally. And on many occasions, they tried to kill him. He was forced to flee from one city to the next. He was stoned and left for dead. His friends at night actually lowered him in a basket so he could escape out the back door. His preaching incited riots and mobs. He was ridiculed by Greek philosophers. Paul made claims that he was, get this one, He made claims that he was bound in the spirit on his way to Jerusalem, not knowing what would happen to him there, except that the Holy Spirit would solemnly testify to him in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions awaited him. Can you imagine going from one town to the next, knowing the trouble that's coming? As Paul wrote Philippians, he was in his fourth year of Roman custody, He was awaiting Emperor Nero's final decision in his case. And Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. How is that? It's supernatural, but it's attainable. We can be there with that. How about you? How about me? How do people see us? How does the world look at us? How do we respond when people ask us how we're doing? Do they see joy in our lives, or gloom and doom in our faces? Do we look any different? Woe is me. We who have been redeemed have hope and glory. Surely we should reflect some divine joy. As we look at Paul's life and the circumstances, he found joy and could say, rejoice in the Lord. Do we find ourselves responding like the Philippian church, our church full of self-pity? How about Epaphroditus, Paul's fellow worker in the Lord? They were great buddies. He came close to death. Paul bore that grief on his behalf. And Paul think that he did not have sorrow upon sorrow at the life-threatening health of his beloved co-worker. Can you imagine having a coworker that you're going through heavy persecutions and he may lose his life? Someone you've walked with for many years. But Paul was still able to speak of an unshakable joy that he experienced in all of his adverse conditions. Afflictions did not impact his supernatural joy. Yet, despite the circumstances Paul and the church were facing, there was a divine joy and unity that God's spirit was bringing to the forefront of the Philippians through Paul's instruction and the people's obedience. The joy that Paul was experiencing and expressing to the church was supernatural joy and a divine joy. It was not based upon earthly comforts and pleasures. In verse 4, why did Paul say rejoice? If you look at it there, he says rejoice in the Lord. He could have just said rejoice and be filled with joy. But no, he said rejoice in the Lord. A.W. Tozer makes this observation, quote, the most important thing about any man is what he thinks about God," end quote. If we have a low view of God and not an elevated view of Him, we will have an unhealthy concept of His his shepherding care and provisions in our lives. Spiritual stability is directly related to how a person thinks about God. We cannot simply rejoice, it's in Him it's in Him, knowing Him, that we can rejoice. The more you know God, the more you will be able to rejoice in the Lord, intimately acquainting yourself with Him, watching Him deal your life through in ways that you never thought would happen. The Scriptures teach that the starting point for knowing God is in keeping His commandments. The Bible says, by this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, 1 John. John continues to say, "'The one who says I have come to know him "'and does not keep his commandments is a liar, "'and the truth is not in him.'" And he finishes up in verse 7. He says, "'Beloved, let us love one another, "'for love is from God, "'and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God.'" When God reveals his character, By his spirit, through the scriptures, we are more inclined to trust in his faithfulness in our lives. We we begin to embrace scriptures like 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through uh, 10, when you go through affliction and troubles. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Knowing God more fully cultivates deep trusting convictions that matures us to the ability to rejoice in the Lord. In Philippians 1.21, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is to gain. That's the perspective that we need to have. He was able to say with confidence that nothing could separate him from the deep joy that was found in the Lord. Now back to Philippians chapter four, verse four. At the beginning of verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, always, think about the implications of rejoicing in the Lord always. I can rejoice in the Lord when things are going smooth. How about you? He could have just said, rejoice in the Lord when convenient, rejoice in the Lord when things are under control, rejoice in the Lord when things are going smoothly, but no. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always, all of the time, on all occasions, forever, continually, incessantly, night and day, unfailing, no end, etc. Trust in the Lord always. Through the coronavirus chaos, through government instability and injustices, through confusions, through sickness, through hindrances and difficulties, As true believers in Christ, we are called to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials and difficulties, James 1.2. The Spirit of God enables spiritual stability. We've got to be dependent upon calling upon the Spirit of God to stabilize stabilize us spiritually. Now let's look at verse 5. Look at the first part of the verse that says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Greek word for gentle spirit has a deeper and richer meaning than the English language is able to convey. It's the idea of having gracious humility. Exercising a gentle spirit, it actually subdues a focus on, self, on self-love self-esteem, self-fulfillment that only leads to a greater instability and anxiety in the church. Those whose focus is not on themselves, they cannot be knocked off balance by injustice and unfair treatment. They can say with Paul, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I've in." Spiritual stability belongs to the graciously humble. Exercising gentleness is being obedient to Paul's exhortation to the Galatians in uh, Galatians 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Watch for this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, here it comes, gentleness and self-control. Self-control puts all of those other attributes into place. We must be a controlled people to do that. But we are to be a gentle people. Paul was dealing with more ongoing disputes. There was dissensions and factions in the church. He said to the Galatians, he exhorted them, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. And now at the end of verse 5, Paul emphasizes... The Lord is near. Some believe that the Lord is near is an eschatological reference uh, referring to Christ's second coming, that he could return at any time, any moment. Uh, Maybe he'll return soon. But more likely, the Greek word ingus, if I'm pronouncing that right, they're closely knit together. The Lord is near... Us, we're closely knit with him together. In Psalms 139, it says, O Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down and rise up. See the intimacy there? You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you already know it. And then in Psalms 119, he says, Lord, you are near. O Lord, all your commandments are true. In Psalms 145, 18, David says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. We have a God that is intimately acquainted with us, and he knows us perfectly. We can call him Abba, Abba, Daddy, Father. We, are, we, have been, uh, we have been adopted into his kingdom. We own everything he owns. It's an intimate call, that Abba Daddy. We need to draw near to the fact that he will help us to live in harmony with one another people and be a people that will rejoice in the Lord always. We are then compelled to practice being gentle, to one another in the Spirit because the Lord is near, He's near us. As we take verse 6 next, it's just going to blend right into verse 7. So it starts with verse 6, be anxious for nothing. People that are deeply committed to entrusting their lives into the care of a loving, sovereign God are not an anxious people. They are confident in God's fullness to the church, faithfulness to the church. Charles Spurgeon says, quote, Anxious cares are numerous, and therefore, let your prayers be as numerous. Turn everything that is a care into prayer. And then he says, let your cares drive you to God. And I shall not mind if you have many of them, if each one leads you to prayer. If every threat makes you lean more on the beloved, it will be a benefit. Isn't that rich? Let's be brutally honest. How are you doing in your prayer lives? Are you praying people? Do you pray in private? Man, that's hard for me. Do you pray constantly when you're driving down the road, when you're in your work? What does that look like? Do you pray corporately? You come together with the people wrapping your arms around them and pray over the church and pray that God would humble us and we'd be a people that would respond to him with great adoration. Prayer may be the most difficult Christian discipline. I mean, look at the disciples. In in Luke 11.1, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, you would think they'd had it figured out after being with Jesus for three years. And then Jesus in Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he asked his disciples, as he's going into the garden, he needed their encouraging prayer. He said, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not fall into temptation, Matthew 12, 41. So in verse uh, 7, a praying people are emotionally at peace, a spiritually stable people. Paul says if we pray and make our requests known to God, he will give us a peace that surpasses all comprehension. It will actually guard our hearts and our minds. And there's no greater comfort than to have our minds guarded in Christ Jesus. Through faithful prayers, of supplications and thanksgiving. When Paul was speaking to the Thessalonians in his first letter, he was dealing, he was dealing with the faint-hearted. They were weak, and to those that were even repaying evil to one another, they were not living in harmony. And he exhorted them to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, because it's God's will. We were studying something in Bible study the other day, and and the Thessalonian church, at the time he made these comments, was a very young church, maybe months old. They didn't even have elders in place at that time. So, those are profound statements that he was warning uh, the church at Thessalonica. So, as we look again, as verse eight, Paul says, "'Finally, brethren,' verse eight, "'Finally, brethren, whatever is true, "'whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The first word in this verse, which says, finally, indicates Paul, he's arriving at the sum of his teaching on spiritual stability. He wants to bring together all that he has said so far, and he wants to brand these truths into the minds of the Philippians by saying, dwell on these things. Where is the mindset? The Greek word for dwell on is logizomai. This is fun. And the word means to evaluate, to consider, or calculate with great conviction. Dwell on. That's where the mind should stay and be. It calls for... Habitual discipline of the mind to set all thoughts on the spiritual virtues. Where we allow the the mind to dwell determines who we are. As a man thinks, so he is. We live in a society filled with wrong thinking. That it, it leads to anxiousness in this society, fearful thoughts. The mind simply dwells on self-pleasures, self-exaltations. And Paul is using the word logitsumai, dwell on, to admonish the church to be disciplined in biblical thoughts, thoughts that grow the believer to maturity so that every man may be complete in Christ. And Paul was deeply driven. For the church to have its mind dwell on right thinking, wasn't he? He wanted them to be right thinking, pure thinking, life transforming thoughts. And then he goes, he says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, Colossians 3. Paul is concerned about the mind dwelling on the spiritual things so much that he warns us again in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, they set their mind on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and Peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. If you can think through the hostility that is driven to God when we set our minds on the flesh and have a healthy fear of striving against sin, it will kind of redirect ourselves as we discipline ourselves in this Christian life. The mind must not just be loose up there. It must be connected to truth. One commentator makes the observation, just as the believer's initial act of saving faith leads to a life of faith, so also the transforming of the mind at salvation initiates a lifelong process of renewing the mind. Romans 12:2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Form by the renewing of your mind. You guys know all these scriptures. The reminders just to, just to dust the brain off and go deeper. To the Ephesians, he wrote, be renewed in the spirit of your, your mind. The greatest commandment that Jesus proclaimed was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If you are not in control of your mind... Your mind is in control of you, right? God helps us to exercise the last fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Let's be people that are self-controlled. Fruits of the Spirit, all of those nine things, the last thing is people, ble, be self-controlled. If we're self-controlled, we can do all of the other fruits of the spirits. Our minds must dwell on these things. And what are they? OK. Uh, There are eight things that our mind should dwell on, and according to verse eight, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is honorable, excuse me, I mixed those up, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, excellence and praise. Number one, dwell on what is true. The mind dwelling on truth is transformed. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Because your word is truth, John 17, 17. God's word has power to transform the church into truth, into harmony, into spiritual stability. He can do that. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Number two, dwell on what is honorable. Believer's mind is to dwell on honorable things, noble dignified, worthy of respect. Meditate on the things that are worthy of awe and adoration. We want to be a people that are worthy of sacred things. Number three, dwell on what is right. A believer's mind must dwell on things that are in perfect harmony with God's eternal, unchanging standards. All things that are subject And in perfect alignment with God's law are right things to let our mind dwell on. Dwell on, number four, dwell on what is pure. The mindset on pure thoughts. Thoughts that are holy. Practice that. It's an interesting thing to do. Morally clean. Pure. Like Jesus Christ is pure and holy. The word pure is to keep self free from sin. Dwell on what is pure. Number five, dwell on what is lovely. What an attribute to have. Oh, if we would be a people that would continue to grow in loveliness. The word could be translated sweet, gracious, generous, or even patient. We as believers must allow our minds to dwell on that which is pleasing and attractive and amiable to God. Number six, dwell on what is of good repute. The Christ-like Christian should have a good reputation. He should be well thought of. You should have a good reputation such as kindness. You should be a person of courtesy, showing respect for others, concern for others. Have a good reputation. It's a lifelong achievement. And then 7 and 8, we're putting those together, and to sum up the things the mind should dwell on, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, excellence and praise, dwell on these things, and the key to godly living is godly thinking. As Solomon, the wisest man on earth observed, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flowed the springs of life. Finally, verse 9. The things you have learned and received and seen in me. Here's where the rubber meets the road. We know all of these things up here. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And what will happen? The God of peace will be with you. The Philippian church learned... And it received, and it heard, and it saw of all these things we've been talking about. And now Paul's exhorting the church to practice these things. Don't be hearers of the word only, but practice these things. And then you will be blessed to have the peace of God. Practice, practice these things gives peace. Paul mentions peace of God in verse seven, this is interesting, that is, that is obtained by prayer. Verse seven, peace of God is obtained by prayer. Verse nine, a peace of God that is a result of church practicing these things. Two areas of peace, practice them, pray. Practice them, pray. What are these things? I'm gonna sum it up. Live in harmony in the Lord, Quit your bickering and backbiting and arrogance. Let's practice putting, be image bearers of Christ corporately. The other thing is rejoice in the Lord. We of all people should be a people that are able to rejoice in the Lord always. We rejoice in the Lord because we know him intimately and he knows us intimately. And we have been redeemed from darkness into light. Never forget that. We have been given life that we do not deserve. We of all people should be a people that rejoice in the Lord. And be gentle in spirit. Exercise a spirit of gentleness that is known throughout all your relationships. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Remember this, blessed are the gentle, for they are the ones that shall inherit the earth. Gentle spirits inherit the earth. And then be anxious for nothing. We live in a time of great anxiousness. This last year, I have seen more, not just unbelievers, but more people in the church that are living anxiously, just wondering, hoping this vaccine comes into place quickly and hoping that our faces are covered constantly and to keep your space. That's fine, but we know, we know that this God will sustain us and support us. We're not going to die a second before he calls us. And we should be dwelling on true things, honorable things, things that are right, things pure, lovely things, good reputations, excellent things, and things that are worthy of praise. Well, people, we've all heard God's word this morning. I pray I did not get in the way of that. And now it's time to obey Paul's exhortations and practice these things so that in this world of uncertainty and darkness, We will have the peace of God and the assurance that he will be with us. These disciplines of the Christian life, they're not beyond our reach. They are attainable. And we need each other here to accomplish those things. We have the spirit of God living in us. And for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, his commandments They're not burdensome. It can be done. And throughout the Philippian letter, Paul's driving theme was unity and joy. If you can think of Noah, we're just drilling this in. Unity and joy. What FBC will look like as we go forward, it could be very profound in a wonderful way. You know, and I, I want to say, this may sound like I'm exhorting heavily, you people are amazing people. I've been here for 32 years, and we've been through some bumps, I'm getting off track here, but you people are amazing. We've had some bumps, but we have to excel all the more, the scripture says. Don't get to a plateau, keep excelling, be kind, be gentle, be looking after, after one another, and, and this brings about a spiritual stability where we're not off balance. Throughout the Philippian uh, letters, Paul's driving theme was unity and joy. We now are living in a post-Christian generation where every man does what's right in his own eyes and every gender identity is being redefined, even gender identity is being redefined by politicians. The morals and the ethics of societies worldwide have deteriorated to the definitions defined by Paul, we've deteriorated to the place that Paul is talking about in Romans 1. Remember it, the suppression of truth. They knew God, but would not honor him. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. Christ and the apostles lived in a very dark, perverted, and a God-hating world. And yet they were to consider it all joy when they encountered these various trials. We aren't quite there yet, but we're heading in that direction. We are experiencing an anti-God society that is unprecedented in the U.S. history. Yet God is sovereignly in control and has commanded us to be different because we better be different. We are commanded to walk in the light. We are commanded to be bearers of the gospel and to do so peacefully and passionately. If we are to navigate ourselves through the coronavirus chaos, other unmentioned godless acts, we must pray for a revival in the heart of the church. It starts with us individually, starts there. Where's my mind? Where's my heart? Am I a fearful person? Am I an anxious person? It starts there. God revive us here. In chapter four, To the Philippian church, Paul has called the church corporately to continuously, to continuously be devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Foundation. If you pull the foundation out from under this building, it will crumble. You can't get away from foundations. The closer and the more frequently the church body, Christ's bride, comes together to engage in selfless ministry, the more it will be united in love and be spiritually stable. Chris, Chris uh, Mullins and Ashley, he may be standing here uh, for the future of uh, FBC. I uh, just pray that we would be a people that would practice these things, that we'd be a people that come alongside, that we'd go the distance the Lord is coming soon, and we want to be a healthy church that is spiritually stable. We'll know who's going to be sta- standing here in about an hour. Turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5:12, and we'll close with this passage, please. First Thessalonians chapter 5:12 through 18. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor over among you and have charge over you in the Lord, and they give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seeking after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, you are in heaven. And your name is holy above all other names. And you promise your kingdom is coming. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.